Today's scripture comes from Exodus 20, verses 1 through 14. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery. You may be seated. As you're seated, let me pray for us this morning. Father, we, we need to hear from you now. Father, we know that it is your word that has the power to transform and to give life. And so, Father, we pray that by your spirit, would you come now and help us to receive what you have for us. Lord, soften our hearts. I pray you would make our minds receptive. I I pray you would prevent us from, from throwing up reasons or excuses for, for why we struggle, Lord, and instead I pray we'd throw ourselves onto Jesus. I pray, Lord, that we would see him more clearly this morning through your word, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning, we are seven-tenths of the way through our series in the Ten Commandments, a series we have called the Ten Words. And what we've seen is that each of these commandments serve to help us understand life better, understand ourselves better, and understand God better. They help us understand life because The God who gave the commandments is the same God who created the world. And thus, these these commandments are not trivial. They don't come out of nowhere. They aren't just there to test our faithfulness. Instead, they're created to show us how to live life in accordance with God's design. To, To follow the commandments is to live life going with the grain. The commandments also help us to understand ourselves better. These commandments are are to be a mirror that that expose our sinfulness, that they serve as a checklist of sorts so that we can clearly see our rebellious nature, our inability to live up to God's will, and they also show us our need for a savior. And then thirdly, these commands show us who God is because not only did God give us these commandments out of his own very nature, but that God will also be our Savior. And so thus, it shows us who our Savior really is. 
Well, well, this morning, we are looking at the seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery. Now, just um, a disclaimer here for parents of children in the room. I, I will not be crass or crude, uh, but I will be pretty clear. And so anyways, I just leave it up to your discretion of, of what you want to do and how you want to disciple your kids. Well, this morning, um, we're going to be looking at the topic of sex. And our culture has a very intriguing and frankly, I think, contradictory understanding of what sex is. Uh, author Russell Moore, he describes a conversation he had as a teenager with a fellow 14-year-old girl who was distraught and disheartened and quite sorrowful. You see, uh, he explains, uh, this girl and, and he, he, he himself grew up in a church that used all of these kind of elaborate charts and signs to, to wrongly to, to try and interpret when Jesus would come back. And this church had told this 14-year-old girl and him that Jesus would return any moment now, like, may, like maybe next week. And, and so he approaches this girl, disheartened, and asks her, what's the problem? And, and she says this. She's very honest. She says, I, I really want to be ready for heaven, but I sure hope that Jesus waits until I've had the chance to have sex. And Russell Moore says, look, he's surprised by her honesty, but he also admits he was hoping the same thing. And, and so as funny as that is, I, I think their understanding of the joy of sex really um, explains our culture's perspective. See, on one hand, sex is the greatest thing life has to offer. So advertising will tell us this, right? It's, it's sex that sells. You should, you should do everything you can to, to have sex. Hollywood will teach us the same story. Run after it. It's the solution to happy ever after. Pornography, it's a trillion-dollar industry, and tech companies are constantly trying to innovate and create solutions so that we can have it accessible and easily. So on one hand, we deify sex. It's the greatest thing life has to offer. And then at the very same moment, we turn around and we trivialize it. Do whatever you can to have it, and then we hook up, have casual sex, and forget about it. It's no big deal. It's just, it's just, it's just sex. See, which one is it? See, I, th I think maybe our culture will try to rationalize it and saying it is, it is gr the greatest thing physically one can have, right? It, sex, they reduce it to, to mere physical pleasure. But I think deep down, if we're honest, we know that that's untrue. Because sexual trauma is much more severe than other sorts of physical violence. To be cheated on is far worse than to get a black eye. To be raped is to undergo in unimaginable pain, hurt, emotional and psychological. It's, a, it's suffering of the deepest kind. And so which is it? Is sex everything or is sex nothing? 
See, the Bible actually says that it's neither of those. See, I think the Bible actually agrees with what our experience and our intuition says to be true. That sex is incredibly significant, but it is not the most significant thing. Sex is, the Bible will say, physical, mental, and spiritual, but it also points beyond itself to still something greater. So this morning, I want us to see three things in our text. That sex is significant. I want us to see, secondly, the devastation of desire. And thirdly, the goodness of grace. So firstly, the significance of sex. What is God's purpose for sex? Well, if you go, maybe this is most obvious, to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 1, God has just created man and woman, and he says this in Genesis 1, 28. He says, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominions over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Se sex is not exclusively for the purpose of child raising and rearing, but it certainly includes that. Uh, God's plan was so that a man and a woman would come together, that they would be fruitful and multiply, and that they would create human beings who would be then created in God's image, who would then spread out across the globe, so that God's image would be seen everywhere one would go. And as God's image bearers, these children who would grow up are to um, basically exercise dominion over the world. Not in an exploitive way, but they're to create, they're to give growth, they're to, to make something beautiful, they're to reform and reshape, they're to bring order out of chaos, if you will, and they're supposed to bring forth technology and growth and, and life. And societies have recognized that. Societies have recognized that, that apart from children, Apart from a new and upcoming generation, that's not possible. When the birth rate is less than the uh, death rate, a society is in trouble, as is the case in China and Japan right now. And they know this. They're doing everything they can to encourage their, their society to have children, to raise up the next generation. This is, this is why the state has actually had a, a hand and an interest in regulating what marriage is. Because a marriage that produces and rears children is advantageous, not just for that family, but for the flourishing of society. So one of God's designs for sex is for there to be new life of children and of society, but sex is not just to be utilitarian. Uh, see, there, there could have been many ways for God to design uh, how new children would come about, right? The stork that drops off a child maybe would be nice and, and easy, right? They, they could have grown on, on trees, as hilarious as that is, and yet, instead of that, God chose for the, for the production of children, this giving of new life, to be incredibly pleasurable, passionate, and also one of the greatest forms of intimacy. See, we know 
that um, God has created certain anatomy for the sole purpose of pleasure. He, he designs male and, and female to be physically attracted to each other, right? So if, if you go just a little further in Genesis, you, you read this. This is the first bit of poetry in our Bibles. What is it? It's the, it's the naked man singing over his naked wife. This is it, right? Genesis 2, verse 23 says this. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Adam's going, she's different. She's intriguing. She's beautiful. I like that. And he sings over her. In our Bibles, we have a whole book devoted to celebrating the intimacy that exists between a husband and a wife. It's the book of Song of Solomon. Let me read you this portion. And this is not, yay, we get to have children language, okay? Behold, this is, this is a husband singing over his bride. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Um, just a disclaimer, men, if we're going to use something like this, you've got to contextualize a little bit here. That might not be the right way to go on about it. Verse 2, your teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes, and they have come up from the washing. You have teeth, and they're white, all of which bear twins, and not one of them has lost its young. Your lips are like a scarlet thread, and your mouth is lovely. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built in rows of stone. On it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields and warriors. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle, that graze among the lilies, until the day breathes and the shadows flee. I will go away to the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. It's a husband singing over his, his wife. He's delighting in her physically. She's a, she's a joy to him. And then guess what? She sings back. See, the, what the Bible is describing here it is, is a husband knowing his wife. The Bible will use that language of knowing one another. And I don't think that's just some bashful euphemism. I think that's actually describing one of the purposes of, of, of sex here. See, she, he's learning about here. He's, he's trying to discover, how do I please her? How do I serve her? What is she like? Well, not what only is she like, but what does she like? Right? How, how can I give myself and pour myself out to serve her and love her? I want to know the depths of who you are, and then so I can give of myself to that end. Sex is not only for child-rearing, it's a gift to be enjoyed. It's a means of learning about one's spouse in the most personal and intimate of ways. But thirdly, uh, 
Sex is also, and it serves this purpose, and I'm going to use Tim Keller's language here. He says it's a covenant cement. Sex serves as covenant cement. See, let, let me explain what I mean here. The Bible says that marriage is to be, and it uses this language, a covenant. Now, a covenant is more binding than just an emotional relationship, but it's also more personal than a legal relationship. See, when, when, when a bride and groom come together at the altar and they make their vows, they form a covenant. There, this is this binding promise that then gets lived out through the context of their emotions and, and love for one another. So what happens at the wedding ceremony? Husband and wife give their vows, they go to the back, they sign the paperwork, they take the photo, they come forward, yada, yada, yada. And then the, then the pastor says, uh, husband, you may now kiss your bride. Why does that happen? Why do they kiss? You see, um, in the Bible, anytime there is a covenant, anytime there's a, this forming of this legal relationship, there's a, a symbol that goes along with that covenant. So in the, in the covenant that God made with Noah, God puts a rainbow up in the sky. The, the rainbow is a symbol of a, of a bow. Like a, like a bow and arrow, except instead of the bow pointing downward, the bow points upwards to say, look, if, if God sends a destruction again, the arrow is to be shot up towards the heavens, towards God. When God makes a covenant with Abraham, it's called the covenant of circumcision. The point is that if, if the, this legal relationship is broken, the other person is to be cut off. When Jesus forms the new covenant, he gives us the bread and the wine, a symbol of his body broken for us, his blood shed for us. There's this symbol. See, a covenant with a symbol, the symbol is an outward reality or an outward expression of an inward reality. And so what is that in marriage? The, the symbol in a marriage covenant is sex. Sex is an outward symbol of an inward reality. See, the, the husband and wife, to, to truly ratify their marriage covenant, they, they have sex on their wedding night, but that's a private engagement, and so a, it's actually a kiss. That's why they kiss. That serves as a stand-in for the moment, for the wedding ceremony. So what is the meaning of sex? Sex is a declaration of self-giving for the sake of the spouse. To be physically naked is to say, look, all that I am is yours. To be naked, to be vulnerable, to expose all of one's flaws, and then to be received by your spouse is to hear your spouse say that I accept you despite your shortcomings. And the beauty of sex is that we reaffirm our marriage vows even after our wedding ceremony. Sex within marriage is a renewing of our vows. It is covenant cement. It's a redeclaration of our commitment to the other person. It's ex an expression of giving of ourselves for the sake of our relationship. And it's to proclaim our love. And so it's that promise, that security, that safety, that reassurance, acceptance, and, and fidelity that exists because of sex 
within the marriage covenant that makes sex so much greater, so much more pleasurable than just the tickling of nerve endings. That was weird language, tickling of nerve endings. Anyways, this is, this, this is a, hot, a hot sermon up here. Um, so it, so it, if that's the significance of sex, then I think we begin to understand why the flesh, the world, and the devil work so hard to destroy it. The devastation of desire, then. The devastation of desire. See, understanding the true beauty and wonder of sex, we can now turn to understand the seventh command. Do not commit adultery. Now, to truly understand the depth of meaning behind that command, you have to look at the words of Jesus. Jesus, in his Sermon on the Mount, is going through, in many ways, these Ten Commandments, and he's explaining them, except he's trying to get at the core behind them. And so Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 5. You have heard that it was said, Seventh Commandment, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than then your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. See, when Jesus says, look, yes, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I say to you, anyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery in his heart. He's not trying to say it's inappropriate to to recognize the beauty in another person. What he's saying is he's trying to prevent us from having this inordinate desire, this this insatiable longing for for someone who is not our spouse. See, See, Jesus isn't just trying to stop the fruit of sin, adultery. He's trying to actually get rid of the, the root which produces that sin which is lust. So Jesus says, look, it's not, it's not okay just to fantasize about someone but then just don't sleep with them. He says, no, no, no. I want to go after the heart here. I want to purify your very desire that gives way to that outward expression. See, if sex within marriage is a covenant good, meaning it's a, it's a giving of myself for the sake of the other and for the sake of relationship, well, sex outside of marriage then is a consumer good. It's this shopping around to try to get something in return. And the result of this is great harm. Also to the individual, to the society, and ultimately to our relationship with God. The, the most pervasive form of lust in our culture, I think, has to be the use of pornography. Pornography is a consumer good par excellence. And and one article, I think it was the the New York Times I read a while ago, said that um, pornography affects virtually everyone in the society. I quote, These are the devastating effects of pornography. Pornography causes crushingly, that's a quote, 
from the New York Times. Crushingly unrealistic expectations of what people look like and ought to perform like. Science says that with every click, we flood our brains with dopamine, this, this chemical that produces joy and happiness and pleasure. And therefore, to actually quit a pornography addiction often looks like quitting cocaine. Um, science says that to be addicted to pornography is to make it more difficult to enjoy pleasure in other areas of life. More than that, it sucks our life away. Teachers will, will explain that their students will often show up to class having stayed up all night, one click after the other, and they have no energy. They're unable to focus or pay attention or be productive. And, and then because we, we're used to this incredible amount of pleasure and dopamine, it actually makes us uh, less tolerant to experience difficulties in the rest of life. Lusting actually makes us more susceptible to anger because people are inconveniences to me rather than individuals to serve. We makes it more easy to run away when things get hard. And so look, please hear this. I don't say this to condemn you, make you feel guilty, but to plead with you. Pornography is killing you. It's devaluing life, others and yours. There's a reason the seventh commandment, do not commit adultery, comes after the sixth commandment, do not murder. Because both devalue life. It's not also just porn that has this effect. Romance novels also can do the same thing. Instead of, it's, instead of a, a lust through the eyes, though, it's, it's a lust through the ears. It's this imagining of a, of a different life of a different type of romance, of, of escaping one's situation, of having a different family, of having a, a different love, of being enamored in a different way. And it all has the same effect of someone serving me instead of me serving someone else. And the end of that lust, which is adultery, is shown to still be the leading cause of divorce. And it's divorce that leaves individuals shattered, friends divided, and children wondering if they ever really knew mom and dad. Children of divorced parents are more likely to undergo serious medical conditions, more likely to attempt suicide, more likely to fail to complete high school, more likely to end up in poverty, and more likely to be incarcerated. The point is this. Adultery is devastating to the individual and also to our society. But it also destroys, and I think this is what I want to show us most clearly, it destroys our relationship with the Lord. See, adultery, to commit it, is not just to disobey God, right? On one hand, it is absolutely that God gave me this command, I disobeyed this command, so I'm, I'm severed from God, right? I'm unworthy to be in, in the presence of this perfectly holy God. I'm, I'm unworthy. I fall short of his standards. Yes, it does that. But, but it, adultery also affects us on a deeper level. See, if you go back to the story of Abraham, 
Um, on one account, Abraham is traveling around and he visits Abimelech, the king of Gerar. And Abraham is with his wife, Sarah, and uh, this king is like, that is a beautiful woman. And Abraham, because he's very fearful, uh, he goes, oh yeah, that's my sister. He, he, he lies. And so Abimelech, this king, attempts to sleep with Sarah, to, to marry her, to make his her own, and sleep with her. And then God shows up to that king in the middle of the night and is basically like, what are you doing? Do you, do you want me to kill you and your entire nation? Don't you know that you're trying to sleep with a married woman? You're, you're about to commit adultery. And this king's like, I had no idea. I, I didn't know that she belonged to another man. And so he wakes up. He's ticked off. And he runs to Abraham and he says this. Genesis 20, verse 9. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a Listen to what the sin of adultery is called. A great sin. You have done to me things that ought not to be done. In the Bible, elsewhere, we'll hear the language of adultery also called a great sin. And then later in the book of Exodus, we read this. So God is just... Uh, done giving Israel the Ten Commandments. He's on the mountain speaking to Moses, and we find out that Israel is making a golden calf for themselves. They're, they're, they're longing, they're lusting after a different God, or a different type of God, at least. And, and, and then we read this. Exodus 32, verse 30. The next day, Moses said to the people, you have sinned, What? A great sin. It's the same word. And now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. The golden calf this fantasizing after a different God is called a great sin because it's also viewed as adultery. It's to forsake the relationship, that intimate, most deep relationship that they had with Yahweh. And the reason adultery is considered this great sin and devastates our relationship with the Lord is because adultery lies about who God is. Our marriage is supposed to be a covenant, firm and solid, that cannot be shaken. And that's supposed to show and represent God's covenant with his people. Sex is intended to, to hint at this depth of intimacy that we have with God, the way he knows us and sees us. Sex within marriage is supposed to be this, this safety and this commitment that, that God has towards us. Sex is supposed to be this giving of oneself to serve the other in the same way that God gives of himself to serve his people. And so adultery doesn't just say that God isn't good enough for me. I want something else. Adultery is to proclaim something about God that is not true and has devastating consequences. And yet, despite the devastation of adultery, God's goodness 
reigns supreme. Thirdly, the goodness of grace then. Let me just ask you this. How do you know you will wake up a Christian tomorrow? How, how, how do you know that tomorrow morning or even tonight, you, you won't just throw it in and say, you know what, I found something else. Right? That, that same inner adulterous heart that I have, that, that tendency to, to wander, to look astray, to, to desire something else. How do I know that that same horizontal adultery that in my heart is not going to produce an adultery that goes vertical? How do I know that tomorrow I won't go, God, you, you've been great, but I, I found another lover? The answer is, is because it's not based on my faithfulness to God, but my relationship with God is based on his faithfulness to me. See, if there is a book, Song of Solomon, devoted to celebrating the depth of intimacy between a husband and a wife, there is also a book of the Bible devoted to speak about the devastation that occurs when we are unfaithful to God, but it also speaks of the hope because of God's faithfulness to us. The book is Hosea. In the book of Hosea, God instructs Hosea, the prophet, to call back Israel. Israel has been unfaithful. They've whored after other gods. They've gone after the Baal of the world. And God's calling them back. And the way God does this is God not only speaks through the prophet, he also acts through the prophet. The, the prophets are often called to live out what God desires for his people. And so God calls Hosea to, to marry a prostitute. Go and marry Gomer. Take her in. And so he marries her. They become one. And then she is unfaithful, just like Israel. And then, despite her unfaithfulness, God says, go take her back. Go buy her again. And so we read this in Hosea chapter 3. And the Lord said to me, and this is a parable of God's love for us, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and an omer and a lethic of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I be to you also. See, the good news the goodness of God's grace is that even when we are faithless, he remains faithful. And so when we run and go astray, not just in our horizontal relationship, but in our vertical relationship with the Lord, he pursues us and comes after us and he buys us again. He redeems us from slavery. Except he doesn't pay for us with a few uh, shekels, with a few uh, lethics of barley. He knows that our life to truly belong to him is worth far more than that. 
And so how does he buy us? He buys us with the very blood of his son. It's Jesus who, who goes to the cross, who says, I will forgive you. I will take your sin, your guilt, your shame on me, and I will give you my righteous life. I'll credit to you the perfect life that I have lived. And so that no, no longer do I count you as an adulterous bride, church. No longer do I count you as one who has gone astray. Instead, I make you my own. I wedge you to myself, says the Lord. He comes after us and invites us back to himself over and over and over again. He will never leave us or forsake us. His grace reigns supreme. And because of that, then let me just end with this. Let me, let me give us, um, I don't normally do this, but I'm just going to read a bunch of Bible passages. I'm going to read eight Bible passages back to back to back. And let the word of the Lord, because of the goodness of God, just speak to you. First, to those who are tempted. 1 Corinthians 10 says, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Hebrews 2, therefore, he, may, he had to be made like his brothers, that's Jesus, in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because of himself, he suffered when tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. And Proverbs 5, For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as warm wood, sharp as a two-edged sword. If you are tempted, flee! Run, run from sexual immorality. But don't just run in the opposite direction. Run to Jesus. For he will provide the way of escape. Next, to those who have been listening to this word and, and recognize their guilt. Who sense that they have gone beyond temptation and fallen into sin. Hear these words from Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus for the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and force him, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Psalm 51 says, this is David. This is David after he slept with Bathsheba and then killed Bathsheba's husband to try and cover it up. David says, purge me with hyssop, Lord, and I shall be clean. Wash me. If you wash me, Lord, I shall be whiter than snow. 
Let me hear the joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. And 1 John 1 says this, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When we confess our sins, we don't come as though we are heading to a judge to be given the pronouncement of guilty. We come as though we come to a doctor who, who diagnoses our brokenness and then provides a way of healing. And then lastly, to those who have been faithful, to those who have remained holy and steadfast because of God's grace, hear these words from 1 Thessalonians. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. And lastly, Philippians 1 says this, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. At the day of Jesus Christ. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Let's pray together. Father, you have made it clear that we are an adulterous people. Lord, would you please forgive us? Please make us whiter than snow. Lord, help us to, to flee sexual immorality. Lord, help us to watch over our eyes and our hearts as they, as they long for other lovers. God, I pray that you would be the source of our identity. God, that we would seek affirmation and affection and love first and foremost from you. God, we thank you that it is because of Jesus, Lord, that we have hope. Lord, it is because of your faithfulness and not our own. It is because of your steadfast love and goodness towards us, Lord, not our own strength that we know that we will be yours for forever and ever. Lord, we await that day for Jesus to return when we are finally brought into your presence. Lord, when we see you face to face, when we know you with the depth of intimacy with which you know us now. And so we say, come Lord Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Hey everyone, this is Jake, lead pastor of Christ City Church, East Vancouver, and I want to let you know about a few things. First, if you're not a part of a local church, let me invite you to join us each Sunday morning at 2605 East Pender Street in East Vancouver for Worship, Word, and Sacrament. Second, 
If you are new and you want to get connected, let me say welcome. Christ City Church East Vancouver is a neighborhood church committed to making missional disciples for the sake of the neighborhood. If you want to be a part of or hear more of what we believe God has called us to do in East Vancouver, please reach out to me at jake at christcitychurch.ca.